What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On today's episode of the Hockey IQ podcast, we bring on Hiroki Wakabayashi. Barely said that one right, been dreading it all day, but I, I think uh, hit it out of the ballpark. And he was a great, great listen. Uh, really get to understand someone who's coming from a completely different background. Uh, it's not the traditional, you know, USA hockey or hockey Canada. Uh, I mean, he's well traveled. It, it was a great episode. What, uh, Dan, did you take away? Yeah, that was awesome. It's good to have, you know, people on with different backgrounds and also different uh, lenses in which they see the game. And, you know, his goalie background's fascinating. I pulled up his resume on his website off worldhockeylab.com. And it is, it puts anything I've ever done to shame. It's just like pages and pages and pages of accomplishments. And he's a really interesting and just fascinating guy to talk to. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed our in-depth talk. I mean, it's tough to talk about box control and RVH and, and some different things like that just on a podcast without the visuals, but I thought we did a great job with that and he explained it really well. So for all those that don't know what the RVH is, I've got a link in the podcast description below. Uh, it's the article we did on it and understand post-play a little bit better if you're not so much into goaltending, make it very easy to read. So uh, I'm excited to get into this episode. Danny, any last minutes to uh, add to this i know he hiroki's battling cancer right now he's kind of in between treatments but what what a great guy great guy let's send it over hiroki welcome to the podcast great to have you thank you very much thank you very much for inviting me uh, i'm super excited to have you on you were a big part of our point shot suck newsletter uh yep. so can't can't thank you enough for that great research that that really hammered home our point <laughs> Thank you. Glad you like it. Yeah. So uh, I think you've got a pretty fascinating story all the way around and even just from your humble beginning beginnings in Japan. So uh, if you wouldn't mind giving a quick background for the listeners at home who don't really know you that well. Yeah. So my name is Hiroki Wakabayashi and I am originally from Japan. So I played hockey till like college level in Japan, but uh, somehow I get involved in uh, hockey coaching over there. And actually that's starting from uh, uh becoming a translator, interpreter for Francois Arel when he was coming to Japan in, uh, I believe it's 1991 or 92 for Nagano Olympic project. So uh, my father was uh, working for Japanese Ice Hockey Federation back then, and I could speak a little bit of English. So he recommended me to become an interpreter. So that's how I started uh, hanging out with Francois. Then. Uh, then I quickly realized that uh, his theory is, you know, groundbreaking goaltending theory in the world. And I thought his doing is quite cool. So 
I try to follow him and become a goalie coach. And actually, I am not personally a goalie at all. I am a forward. So it's kind of funny, but uh, that's the way I get into the coaching path. Then after that, uh, I graduated from university and decided to take the master course in sports. Then uh, at the same time, I try to explore my resume in hockey coaching. So I left Japan, then uh, started coaching in Peterborough, Ontario for minor peaks. So that was like a U18 level back then. Then after two seasons, I moved to Minnesota and started coaching division three women's hockey there with the University of St. Mary. Then after that, I came back to Japan, then started coaching college level over there. Then uh, I had a chance to coach in professional league there, Asia League Hockey. So I became an assistant coach for one of the teams. Then I spent a couple of years over there, then decided to move back to U.S. again, actually North America again. So I came to Canada again around the Quebec area up in the mountain. There's a, a boarding school. Now it's getting popular, hockey academy thing. Back then that was not very popular, but it's a school called Harrington College of Hockey or something like that. Then uh, I went there for one season and coached a bunch of different kids from like 12 different countries, which is interesting by itself. Then I uh, moved to San Jose to coach Junior Sharks over there for one season. Then I had a chance to come to Phoenix, Arizona, then uh, moved to Phoenix. Then after five seasons over there, I decided to move out with the working visa purpose. I have I had to renew my work visa, so I had to leave the country a little bit. Then I moved to Turkey, Istanbul, and coach over there for half season. Then I moved to Hong Kong for two seasons and worked on national teams over there, men's national team and women's national team. Then... I finally get back in U.S. Uh, 2015 to Arizona, and that's it for now. Then I'm here in Arizona since then. So it's a long journey. Well-traveled. Well-traveled. Oh, yeah. There is okay. so much to dig into, but before – I don't want to get too far ahead. Let's start at the beginning. Like, I'm so curious what it was like growing up playing hockey in Japan, and how is it any different than it is today, or if you know. Well, you know, hockey is never a popular sport in Japan. And actually, back then, that was a little more popular than as of now. The Japanese economy is hurting for about 20 years. So, obviously, hockey is going down. So, you know, uh, one, of the peak of the, one of the peaks of the Japanese hockey should be like Nagano Olympic, right? It, uh, we, had, we hosted the Nagano Olympics in 1998. So, that was one of the peaks we had. But after that, it's actually going down so when I was like when I started playing hockey I was like 11 years old and I'm from Osaka Japan so hockey is even less popular over there but uh, somehow I lived close to the rink so I found the sport and you know that's how I started but of course there are only a few teams around Osaka area and at the college level there are more teams around Tokyo then uh, so I moved to the college around Tokyo, not at the Tokyo, but uh, so that's how I kept 
on playing hockey. So it's different, but we've been having our professional leagues years, actually. So we started out with the Japanese elite professional league. Then after that, they kind of merged with the uh, Korean teams and uh, teams from China. And they call them Asian League Hockey. And it's been going on about 20 years. So it's quite different. So you've been to a bunch of places. Um, you clearly learned from a lot of different areas. You've seen how things have been done in different areas of the world. Um, is there a difference between the way North America does it and the rest of the world? Is one way better than the other? Like, how do you manage all of these different cultures and how hockey is thought of and, and merge it into like best practices? And where do you like to pull from? You know, it's uh, hockey is hockey, basically. So on the ice, it's not much of a difference, but off the ice, it's quite bit different because of you know the way the structure hockey in North America is much better than anywhere else because you know this is a center the very center of the hockey business in the world like two-thirds of the hockey population registered population there in North America US or Canada two-thirds so it's gigantic so of course there's so many levels in hockey here so you know you can be like beer league player or NHL player but you can fit in somewhere so it's very, very different, but pretty much anywhere else, and especially like hockey developing countries in Asia, it's very, very tough to find the right level to play. So let's say you're a 12 years old hockey kid in Hong Kong. He could be as good as like AAA kids in US actually. Like some of the kids can really play, but you know, in order to find the right level for them to play, it's very, very difficult because they have to now play with like 16 years old boys you know and you're only 12 years old but your skill is good enough but as we all know that's not the right fit for him you know what I mean so it's very very different and difficult when you are elite players in that area and you have to find somewhere so most likely you have to leave the country so that applies to the countries like Japan as well if you're top players in Japan you have no choice but leave the country and which is not easy. So that's the biggest difference. You know, the North American hockey structure is so well organized. Of course, you know, they're good and bad, but overall it's well structured. You mentioned your um, time with Francois Allaire as a real uh, formative part of your hockey life. And now you own a company, World Hockey Lab. Can you tell our mm -hmm. listeners about that? So World Hockey Lab is basically my business name when I do my camps and clinics in North America. And when I'm in Japan, you know, I use the Hockey Lab Japan name to do the business. So under this name, I run hockey camps and some kind of hockey consulting. Then I also run my hockey website and showing my stats and things like that. So that's what I do. Yeah, so summertime and springtime, it's a busy time for me because I usually go back to Japan for about two months then uh, running the camps in different cities. Then after that, I come back to U.S. and do my camps around U.S. So it's, a, the, it's easy. Are the camps uh, for players and goalies or just one or the other? Uh, most likely goalies, but uh, I work with players as well, especially when I'm in Japan. So, yeah, I do both. I enjoy both, actually. So my question to you is, is how do you take your experience as a player and transpose that onto a goalie? 
And then are you still in touch with Francois Allaire? Are you still working with him, kind of teaching those types of principles? Uh, how does that how does that work? How does those camps work? Uh, Dan and I are got we don't know Mitch Korn specifically himself, but uh, we have a lot of connections to him. So curious to see what he's doing compared to Mitch. Yeah. So first of all, you know, as a forward, I think that was my actual advantage to learn how to coach goalies from Francois Allaire. Because back then, Francois' theory was like way ahead of its time. So he came to Japan and tried to teach his way. And people shocked. And actually, they couldn't, many of the so-called experts, they couldn't accept it. Just by the fact, like, you have to go down to stop the low shot. They're like, why? You know, you go down, you got score five, oh, that's no good. You have to place your stick ahead of you, not right in front of the pads. And they're like, Why? You know, so many expats, so they call, they couldn't accept those kind of theories. But for me, I'm just playing forward. And to me, it's, uh, his theory just makes sense. Like everything makes sense. And I, wow, that's good. So for me, there's no, there's no obstacle. Like, uh, you know, there's no mental obstacle to go over to accept his theory. So that's part of the reason I get along with I get along with Francois very well at the beginning to now. So that's what I think. Then uh, the way, like I say, the way he coached goalies is just way ahead of its time. So so many of the modern theories that we all know nowadays, it's pretty much created and organized by himself like 30 years ago. So it's been my, so it's been a blast for me to learn, you know, from one of the very best from the world. That's for sure. When you work with kids today and, you know, it's just assumed, right, that you're, they'll learn butterfly. Do you ever have to explain that it's like not that old of a concept and it wasn't always done this way? That must be like a crazy trip for these goalies who, you know, this, they just accept it that this is how it's always been, right? Yeah. So basically, you know, that's all they see from TV. Right. You know, nowadays, I don't really have to explain it. You know, you just, just do it just like the NHL goalies do. But back then, like 20 years ago, that was a completely different world. You know, you always have to battle with the local coaches because they don't like the way I coach and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's been a long way. Aside from Butterfly, what's, what's something that, you know, has changed dramatically in goaltending physically or, you know, mentally uh, over the last generation? You know, the most people don't realize – what most people don't realize is butterfly is just a saving technique and it's not the, like uh, the center of the center of the modern goaltending style. I think uh, what advanced most is the, the structured way to play goaltending. So if you talk about the goaltending, most people are thinking it's about the reaction to the shot but it's not, it's about the positioning first, you have to get there. So the skating has to be revolutionized. Then that's what, uh, what one of the main thing Francois did, the skating technique to move around the crease so you can get in front of the puck. Then you have to perform the saving and which is, uh, which is butterfly because most likely the shot is going along the ice back then. So you have to close the major part of the net. Then after that, this is even more important theory, but it's about the rebound. As long as you stop the puck, you're going to create short rebound or long rebound. Short rebound, you have to freeze it. 
So you get a whistle and long rebound, you follow to the next position. Then you're going all the way back to the skating part. So now it's a big circle, big cycle, you know, do you, you move before the shot, stop the shot, and you move after the shot. So this is like a revolutional concept, actually. So it is not just about uh, stopping the puck with butterfly. It's about uh, the way you organize and structure, the way you move around the net and play with the puck and rebound. Well, I'm curious because uh, I feel like it's been a hotly debated uh, save selection. What, what your thoughts are of the RVH? RVH. I think it's a... Uh, Every time when the new skill like RVH or even fly is introduced, there's going to be a huge debate when to use and how to use because it's most likely overused. So we've seen this pattern, like, you know, when the butterfly style is introduced, everyone is criticizing butterfly because they all go down and you got, you got scored high. Then after a few years, everyone accept butterfly is going to work, right? Then uh, do you remember the paddle down thing? It was like night. It was like an Eddie Belfort or, or Kelly Rudy kind of saving style, just go all the way down yeah. to the paddle all the time and just crawling around. When it's used, it worked quite well, and people like it, and kids start using it. Then all of a sudden, they overuse it. Then everyone is criticizing how bad it is. But after a few years, they finally figure out how to use it effectively, and no one argue. And before RVH, there is a, you know, the one pad down save, saving technique at the post. That was, that was not reverse VH, it was actually VH. Same thing, overused and get scored on the shoulder, over the shoulder. They just criticize it and now it's gone. And now reverse VH the same way. So I think it's a pattern, you know, it's a, it's a new skill. First, they think it's gonna work 100%, but not, no, none of the skills gonna work 100% anyway. So soon they start figuring out how to use it effectively. So now it's a transition period. And, you know, people are, tend to forget about how effective it is and just seeing how bad the goals are scored. So most likely you will see the highlight from NHL clips and saying like, well, you know, I should have stopped this because just because you're going down and reverse VH, you got scored, that's stupid. But it's not true. Because most of the time, like 100, if you got a shot, like 100 shots, shots on goal, and you going down a reverse VH in a certain situation, you pretty much stop all of it, but one or two goals against. But it's on the TV, and everyone is criticizing. So statistically, I actually calculated, and uh, I calculated all the dead angle goals, including reverse VH and things like that, Mainly below the outside hash mark, it, it's, you know, it's, it should be like a bad goal, right? That bad goal, that angle goal, happens only once in 169 shots, which is like once wow. in you know, five goals, five games average. Right. But it's on TV every day. So they're like, it's been happening every day, every shot, but it's not. It's only happening like once in a five five games. So it's about the perspective and uh, for fam, for the fam, for hockey fans, you know, they can debate all day long, but for the coaching purposes, you know, you cannot see that it scales like that. You know, you have to see what works and what doesn't work and just try to fix it every day. And that's all about it. So that's my point. I love how you're using data 
inside of that. It's not just observations. And I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about your, your website. And I actually picked up goaltending here recently. Uh, my brother moved to Charlotte. So I uh, got to use his gear now that he left it behind. So I, I like to think I'm part of goalie nation. And I started with just doing the VH, nice. but I'm already converted to starting to use the RVH here and there because I, I don't know how to stop a puck on the ice to save my life half the time. Uh, or if I see it coming, I'm just not fast enough yet. So yeah, I, I'm the overuser of the RVH. I need to figure out how, how to better util, utilize it. Clearly you've got this down pat. Yeah. One no. thing is about, yeah, one thing is about, you know, how to go down in RVH, but uh, many goalies don't know how to get up from it. So that's a huge part too. We were just talking the other day, a friend of mine, of mine and I about, how you could even quantify all the shots that aren't taken because a goalie is in good position. So if let's say you're wheel in the net and you're about to shoot on a wraparound, but the goalie is in an RVH and because he's in such strong position, you defer on the shot and, you know, make another play. That's not even going to be factored in on Hiroki or like 169 shot, you know, uh, analysis. Right. So I'd be interested, you know, we're not there yet, obviously, but it, I'll be interested to see if one day we can capture that in, you know, our analytics. Anyway, that's just a tangent of mine. Um, I'm curious, Hiroki, if you think it's a coincidence or not, that's kind of a leading question, so I apologize, that there are so many goalies who go on to have coaching roles or managerial roles as a percentage of the overall population. I think uh, it's been a trend. Not, it didn't really start recently right. because uh, I see many ex-goalies becoming very, very good coaches. I think part of, partly because they're watching the game from behind, you know. So they will see how the game is structured and how the game is developed from the back end. So I think that's part of the reason. And Another way to say it is uh, goaltending is very, very theoretical position. It's not like, you know, you just play like how you feel and you're going to be successful. It is not, you know, you really have to have the theory and you really have to be disciplined to move within your theory. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to success. So that's part of the reason they're good on that coaching and management part of the game. I'm, I'm a big fan of goals. I feel like they're just so observational. They pick up on things that as a player, I never would even think about. So I, I was lucky to have my brother as a goaltender and figuring out how to solve the goalie and, you know, what's tough save, what, which are tough saves to make and things like that are critical. I'm assuming you, you've seen the same as coming from that player background into coaching goalies. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, uh, to me, I'm lucky because I, I play out and I coach goalies. So I've seen, you know, I've seen both sides and I study both sides. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a same point from the different side. So I can see it both see it from both sides. So it's been very, very lucky. And one thing I figured out is it's not about, you know, people start, people are talking about like, which hole should I take? Should I pick when I face a goalie glove, glove higher five hole? But my understanding is it's not about the holes you can shoot because if the goalie is in front of you already and gets set, you know, the chance to the chance you can score is quite low anyway. So it's not about the shot itself. It's about the situation. <laughs> you have to create the scoring situation instead of waiting for the goalie to come in front of you and try to pick the hole. But, you know, I do understand because I play both. You know, I play both and I coach both. All right. Yeah. Rapid fire question here. 
in general, if a shooter is looking to gain an advantage, should they shoot low on the net or high on the net? Well, statistically, I have the stats already. And I'm talking about the NHL goals, like, you know, 2,000 plus NHL goals. Which hole is the most goal in NHL? Are you asking? I am asking because I, I know the answer already. I bet it's low blocker. High glove. The answer is high glove. It's high glove. And after that, what is what is it after that? The second most score area. Five hole. Oh, I think you read it already. This it's guy already hole. knows it. Let's go. Yeah. So it's very interesting everywhere in the world you ask the coach or you ask the parents they're complaining about how bad the glove side high is and how bad the five hole is for the kids you know but you're talking about the nhl goal is top of the world it's the same weakness high glove and five hole isn't it funny that is funny speaking of kids i'm curious um so i coach youth hockey so does greg and i've noticed over the last maybe a year or two that USA hockey's kind of pushed a little bit more for um, a split net, right? So like a goalie will play the first half of the game and then a cold goalie will come in and play the second half of the game. Whereas, you know, me growing up and probably, I'm, I'm probably speaking for you, but tell me if I'm not, you know, goalie would play game one, goalie two would play game two, for example. What do you think about that? I think it's a fantastic idea to split the, split the net. Like, you know, even like half period and you switch the goalie, that's, that's a fantastic idea for kids because, you know, once you come to the rink and you should play, you know, there shouldn't be a game for especially like 10 years old kid just sitting in the bench for a whole, whole game. So I think it's a fantastic idea. And at the same time for, for the kids to focus for like 45 minutes, it's impossible for goalies. So it's just cutting half would be, good idea and cutting like quarter would be even better idea so i i like the idea that's good to know uh, i'm happy to have your endorsement is there i'm just playing devil's advocate here is there any concern at all about um you know like being going in cold or on you know you've been sitting on the bench for 45 real minutes or 40 real minutes and then playing or not really not really i think they get used to it and that's uh, that's part of the reason i I would go even more aggressively. Like, you know, maybe you can, if you want to switch goal every five minutes, you can do it. And maybe it's a good thing to do because, you know, every time they come back to the bench, you know, you can, the goalie coach can talk to the goalie and see, you know, how they fix the problem and stuff like that. So, and that way you're not going to get called at all. So. Right. That's interesting. Goaltenders on the fly. Can we, can we do this? Can this be a thing? Heck, we should even start pulling goalies when it's tied at the end of the game. Second like 30 seconds only. left. Yeah. I would do it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you support that? It's okay. You know, as long as you know how to play. So as long as you can control the puck, and it's it, which is the name of the game anyway. So maybe the kid's gonna control the puck even better when you pull the goalie because yeah. he has to. Right. So yeah, it's kind of like you, I'm sure you've seen this too. Sometimes teams play stronger when they're playing in front of like their weaker of the two goalies structurally. I think that's always kind of interesting. Okay, so you've mentioned a few times now different statistical research that you've done. Is there any other ones that we haven't brought up that you're especially you know, proud of that would make us smarter, make our audience smarter? Because I feel like there's a lot there that we haven't touched yet. 
Yeah, one of the things I researched a lot was the screenshot. You know, the, the guys in front of the net creating the traffic so the goalies cannot see that puck. It's a screen situation. So every time the goal scored, I count how many screens in front of the net, like offensively and defensively. So screen by your own defenseman and screen by the offensive player. And uh, what I found out is quite interesting. The offensive screen done by the attacking player, it's only like 5% of the goal. Defensive screen made by your own defenseman is 10%. So doubled up. And double screen is 15%. And you all, all combining, it's like uh, 35% or something. But the funny fact is you are getting scored through the screen created by your own defenseman. Twice as many. Wow. That yes. is fascinating. So is that a commentary on the way that teams play offense or the way they play defense? Because if you're, if you're, a, if you're the attacking team, if you, you know, drag somebody to the net, in theory, the other team will have a defenseman there to mark them, so there will be twice the traffic, right? What do you think about that? Or, or are you saying that just by virtue of the defenseman being a defenseman, he's already standing there? I think it's both because uh, it is very tough to tell the defenseman not to block the shot, right? So they will be blocking the shot, but uh, sometimes they don't know how to block it. So if you're already in front of the puck, block it. But if you're too late and you have to go across, like a slide across goalie's eyes, don't block it. Because once you start doing it, goalie's going to lose the side of the puck. You know what I mean? But uh, many defensemen, without knowing it, they just try to help the goalies and try to slide across goalie's eyes. So that's the problem, you know. But uh, offensively, I think the fours are getting very smarter to utilize the defensive screen as well. So instead of playing one-on-one and try to beat the guy all the way around, you know, you just move the puck between his leg and just shoot the puck. So it's going to be screened by his own defenseman and goal is going to be in trouble. So it's, uh, I think it applies to both sides, offensively and defensively. What are your thoughts on Tampa Bay? I know they played a few moments of where they didn't even have players in front. They didn't have that net front presence, uh, as, as they say. It was kind of just clear it out and, and try to stretch the defense that way and get slot shots. It makes sense, too, because especially from uh, right in front of the slot, that's uh, you know that's the area you have the best scoring angle, right? So you don't really have to block the shot by the, your own, by even by your own screen, because it's gonna actually, you know, decrease the chance of hitting the net. I think except for power play though, I do know that uh, power play situation, they have a couple guys in front of the net, so. Half the time when I play goal, I'm like, I, can you guys just not play defense in front of the net? If you guys can just, you know, slightly off to the sides, pick up a stick, that would be way more helpful for me, or at least that's how it feels as a novice. I'm not sure if that's something that uh, NHL teams should start doing. Of instead of fronting, <clears throat> instead of fronting the puck, just lean off to the side, let the goalie have maybe a single screen for their the other opponent, and you know just pick up sticks, no rebounds, just control that kind of stuff. It is possible, you know. But uh, as I say, if the puck is already at that point, and if you're fronting the shot as a forward, I think you can still do it. But the problem is the, the screen getting closer to the net, and now it's going to be a real problem for the goalie. So, like I say, if you're already in front of the puck, 
you can block it. But if you're not, let the goalie seize a puck and try, try not to help too much. So that's what I would say. So the worst screen the goalie can have is the goal, the screens going in front and flash across from right to left, because there will be a there will be a the the moment that you're gonna you're not gonna see the puck. So as long as the screen staying stationally in front of the net, you can see the puck from sideways. So. So we've talked some about where we've come from the evolution of the goalie position. Where do you think it's heading next? What are the big changes that we can expect to see in the next few years? That's an interesting question, but I think the goalies keep, goalie is going to be getting better on the reactioning part because, uh, you know, they know how to cover the lower part of the net, but the question is how to cover the higher part of the net effectively with using, using your hands. And now they're talking about the box control to, to, uh, create smaller box in front of you by placing your hands away from your body. And now it's time to work on how to, how to move your hands effectively right and left. So that's going to be, that's going to be the area we really have to improve. That's huge. The hands out in front or something I just drill on with my goalies. Um, and I want to say that originated over in the Scandinavian countries back in the late nineties, early two thousands, where that started coming. And then, I, I mean, I, I understand what box control is, but maybe explain that for our listeners of what truly box control is, because there's not a lot of resources out there. I think there's maybe like two or three YouTube videos that do even a half decent job of explaining box control. Uh, Cause it's, I think it's a critical theory for goalies to understand, but really hard to conceptualize uh, without Without materials of actually being able to see it or talk through it with someone who, who's gone through that before. Well, it's a uh, it's a little bit tough concept to explain without using the visual, you know, pictures or video. But uh, the concept is instead of trying to protect the net behind you, you try to protect the net in front of you. That is it, because uh, in order to make the shot coming from the stick. To hit the top corner, it has to go through like go through many different uh, many diff many little nets in front. Right, That's like planes how I almost. Explain. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so it has to go through many many nets in front of you. So in, if your hands are placing beside you, you can only protect the shot beside you, but if your hands are away from your body and in front of you, you can touch the puck in front of you instead of like uh, the top of the top of shoulder. So I can explain it very clearly using the stick and, you know, uh, net visually, but uh, it's very tough to do it right now. So It is. And it's the same as kind of challenging, right? You're, you're going out so that you don't have to cover as much net. You need less movements. You're more in control. Um, obviously you're going to leave a little bit more net in, you know, behind you when you kind of do those types of things. But I think box control is just a key concept yeah. of understanding of how your hands can challenge. It's not just your positioning with your feet. Exactly. So you're challenging yourself out from the net is an old concept, but actually the box control is challenging out using your hands only, you know, and it's going to be the same effect. Your hands are out and your positioning's, a little bit behind, it's the same effect, you know. You don't really have to challenge outside the crease to cutting down the shooting angle. And 
at the same time, there's a very interesting theory of box control. Everyone is thinking like if you challenge out, you can close out the shooting angle, but you're only talking about shooting angle outside of you. Inside of your body, the shooting angle actually increase if you challenge out. You know what I mean? Let's say, let's talk about the five hole. If you're not challenging out, your five hole is your five hole at the same size. But if you're challenging out to the puck, like six feet, you're actually exposed more net from your five hole. Makes sense, right? It does make sense. It's really interesting to conceptualize that. I've never really even thought about it before. Yeah. So that's part of the reason the reverse VH is getting scored from right beside the net from like, you know, two, like a couple inches off the post. If you try to hit that little hole with the skate and the pad from the blue line, you cannot do it because it's too small to hit it. And you can, you know, you can react to it very easily. But the puck is too close when it's like a foot length. The three inches by three inches hole could be much, much bigger from the puck point of view. You know what I mean? So the challenging out is not, uh, not really covering all the scoring angle. It can only cover... It can only decrease the scoring angle outside of the body. Inside of the body, the scoring angle actually increase if you challenge out or if the puck is getting close. This is exactly what you're talking about earlier. You need to understand the philosophy and the concepts behind the, the position. You can't just go out and go crazy and freelance be, it. Yeah, you, you really have to have that, that base. So that, that's great. And man, box control is huge. Um, switch yeah. the hand. So I know you're doing a lot of work um, just trying to get goaltending into more people's hands, especially non-goaltenders with USA Hockey. Uh, maybe explain a little bit of, of what you're doing with the goalie, as a goalie development leader for USA Hockey out in Arizona and the Rocky Mountain region. Well, I think it's a, yeah, it's been my pleasure to do this kind of a job because, you know, I want to walk for many goals as possible. So uh, this is a position to help out the USA Hockey events, like uh, try hockey events or goaltending coaching clinic or goaltending clinic itself. So it's a, a local leadership kind of a role that can help out the USA Hockey events of goaltending around Arizona. So I work with uh, the development leaders within Arizona and uh, and at the same time, I work with the development coordinator in Arizona so they can have a goalie clinic and goalie coaching clinic around Arizona. So I can help out as many goalies as possible, not just, uh, you know, not just my club. That's huge. It's, it's such a nuanced position. No one really gets access to it until you try it out or you know someone who's close to it. Um, again, I was blessed to have my brother as a goalie, so I got to see the, kind of the evolution of his game and how he played. Uh, even just triple-A hockey up through U18s. Um, it was it, – it's insane. And, and the focus level that they they build up over years and years and years of focus is incredible. So major respect for goaltending and what you're doing out there. Uh, I, this, this has been a great episode. I don't know. Any, any other things that we're missing about goaltending? Because it's such a wide-ranging topic, but something that's super important and not talked about enough. One thing I really have to talk here is the importance of the skating ability for goalies. It's been said, but it's not been done yet to develop the skating ability when they are younger. And 
one of the conclusions I get is you really shouldn't play specifically goalie position till you get like maybe 12 years old. And of course you can play part-time, but not full-time. So I try to endorse my goalies within my club not to specialize to play goal full-time till like 12 years old because I want them to skate around and I want them to how to skate, how to shoot the puck. It's going to be huge. And if you're a beginner and you cannot even skate, you know, and try to put the pads on and try to T-push and stop, that's pretty much possible. It's like a torture for kids. You score and you're not going to get improved at all. So instead of doing that, I want them to skate out and get the basic ability. If you can skate, skate around and stop, you can T-push, stop, no problem. So it has to be done that way. So I, yeah, that's my point. That's awesome. awesome. That, that's really great advice. All right. Well, before we let you go, uh, do you have a great book recommendation for us? Anything you've read recently that, you know, catches your eye? Uh, not the recent book, but uh, I always recommend to people to read the uh, Mental Toughness book uh, done by uh, Jim Lair. He's like a mental toughness uh, giant. You know, he's uh, one of the guys who come up with the concept of the mental toughness itself. So it's a it's a book called The New Toughness Training for Sport and Sports. And the author is Jim Lair. And another good mental toughness book is uh, uh, The Inner Game of Tennis. That is uh, done by Tim Galway. So I, I'm a big fan of The Inner Game of Tennis. I actually started writing an article about how that can translate to hockey and how you can use field learning. So I don't know how I'm going to transfer that, but I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think uh, what I like about the theory is it's not about uh, how to become, how to be in that zone, thing like that. You know, it's about how to interpret the, how to make the interpretation or how to make the perception of the things happening around you and, and try to, you know, try to control what you can control instead of a try to worry or try to personalize everything happening in everything happening around you. So I think it's not only good for sport, but it's really great for the human life itself. And I think I got help. I got help out by his theory and uh, Jim Layer's toughness theory a lot. Couldn't have said that better. And I'm assuming that has uh, come full circle for you. Uh, maybe give a, a little shout out um, to some people that have been great for you because I know you've had a tough battle with cancer right now. So uh, maybe expand on that a little bit. And yeah, I think uh, you know it's been a it's been a battle for me with the, the cancer, multiple myeloma for this year. And what I found is the thing I learned from the sports, like a mental toughness and the coaching kind of thing, and everything really really helped me out in battling through this moment, because without that, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. But uh, I already know that, you know, how to control my mind. And I already know that, you know, I can only control what I can control, you know? So that's, it's simple of the life, but you know, the, unless you have this kind of a big disease, you're not realizing how important it is to apply to your life. So it's been very, very helpful. So I recommend all the people to get involved in sports and uh, learn how to manage your state of mind and stuff like that that's going to help you your well-being all around your life wonderful well uh it's been great having you on at the end of every episode we love to leave the floor open so two minutes talk about anything you want it's all yours 
Well, thank you very much for inviting me. First of all, then, uh, like I say, it's been not easy year for me, and uh, pretty much it's been it's it's been very very difficult year for all of us. But uh, like I say, control yourself and control what you can control around you, and uh, it's gonna be all fine at at the end. So that's all. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you down the road. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand on hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at hockeysarsenal.com. From there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, You can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you buttes here next week for a brand new episode.